Good evening, welcome to Eyesore Podcast, where you learn how to draw, paint, sculpt, and generally create visual art. Today we're going to be talking about the knit and the grit of the art biz. How do you make money? How do you feed your mouth and sleep in a interior with a roof over your head? Lucas Bononi has some of the answers to that question. He's been a full-time artist for the past five or six years, while I believe he was an undergraduate. He studied at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. He now lives in Queens, New York, where he is a student at the Grand Central Atelier. Another one of those Atelier people, huh? Well, what do you think when you go to school with them? So, Lucas strikes me as one of those business-savvy artists that I've come across. So... I just had to. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Had to sit down, pick his brain, and um, dig out the juicy little tids. Uh, the little tidbits for you to feast upon and perhaps metabolize into new art savvy for yourself. There's a lot that we have covered in this interview. A lot that Lucas sees high atop his perch on his art tower so i've put it all in the show notes if you want to expand your knowledge i guarantee you you're gonna find something you haven't heard of in these show notes check them out do some homework if you feel like it after this podcast you have no excuse to not be a a biz whiz um go out there and make your millions give me some royalties and i'll thank you for it been in your studio before which is also your apartment yeah yeah it's really cool um you got like everything that you could ever want here you got your bed you got your kitchen you got your painting easel thing it's on the wall you got your breakfast you got everything here is this how you made it work as a full-time artist yeah this is definitely one of the main dealios Uh i also get to say Oh, I have a painting studio, and it's actually my house. Uh-huh. So, because <laughs> my house is a studio, so it's like a two for one deal. Uh-huh. This is a huge upgrade from where I was living in San Francisco when I was doing my BFA. I was living in a shoebox. It was like about six by nine foot. Like my bed barely fit inside the um, the spot I was living at. It was like a subsidized, like government subsidized kind of living situation. Housing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was very ghetto. Uh-huh. It was very ghetto, but it was in the in the downtown financial district oh, yeah. of San Francisco. So I was always saying like that if I wanted to run from like run to safety from a ghetto situation, I just needed to leave my apartment complex because like the <laughs> safest part of Go San Francisco. But I did that on purpose because I knew that that would be the way that I should start. If I were to sell a painting and get half, it would be the cost of my monthly rent. Yeah. And so I said, okay, I'm going to quit my job, go to this very small unit, and try to make it happen. I started doing little paintings. I was doing them for a show called The 50-50 Show. 
painting 50 paintings in 50 days. Uh-huh. And so like while I was painting those, those 50 little paintings, I was also doing other shows. And so like if I were to focus on another show and lose a couple days on the 50-50 show, then like I had to like paint three or four paintings in one day that yeah. were six by six. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it was yeah. pretty intense. I started off like sleeping like four and a half hours every night. Like it was, it was pretty intense, a lot of painting. You know, just trying to make it happen just off of my paintings and, mm-hmm. and nothing else. So yeah, that kind of took off and I realized like that I was part of a movement because you have the Daily Painters movement where yeah. they're all doing these small paintings and, be, and that's mainly because they just have like a certain amount of time in the day that they can do these small paintings. Yeah. And, and so I ended up doing a series and got recognized by a gallery in Santa Barbara called Waterhouse Gallery. And it was going great. Like, in, in nine months, they sold 21 of those little guys. They quadrupled my prices, which I was really scared about because I heard nightmare stories about people getting their prices doubled or tripled by galleries and then not being able to maintain that. Like but people can't afford it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of like if you go from, uh, I don't know, if you go from 10000 to 40000 you're hitting another market. Can you keep up with that market? Yeah, I don't know. Right. <laughs> you know? So, it, <laughs> um, so yes, I I was I was with them. Now I'm not doing so much uh, small works. I mean, as you can see, like uh-huh. on the easel is a forty by sixty. Yeah. Yeah, I I kind of went both extremes uh-huh. from small <laughs> little paintings to so, like so, huge ones. Uh-huh. Uh, and I mean, the whole idea of it was that the small paintings were to fund my larger paintings because oh, huh. um, it was more stable income yeah, and nice. and I kind of treated them as business business cards like I actually you know like it's true right yeah because like they're little tiny little paintings and you could you know you could sell like two or three hundred of those and you could you know essentially tell someone I've sold two or three hundred paintings, uh-huh. but you know they don't have to know like that they're these little tiny paintings that are very easy to collect, and um, people resonate with the randomest stuff. Like, someone would just come up to me and be like, "Oh, that door lock reminded me of my Manhattan apartment," and uh-huh. like buy it for that reason. And because it was affordable, it, I was able to like plant a lot of seeds that way. To a lot of people. Yeah. Who resonated with different things. Yeah, so it was definitely more uh, quantity than quality at first. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to really get myself out there. Yeah, yeah. And those funded my, my longer process paintings. Like, I was doing paintings that were taking, like, half a year while I was doing these, these little guys. And, and at the time, I was doing my BFA at Academy of Art University in San Francisco, so I was able to use their space and I had my my own studio and everything there. That's an interesting school because it's the largest school, it's the largest art university in the United States. And yeah. so like they have 50 buildings. You're saying like was, 20% of San Francisco. Yeah, yeah they, they get sued a lot for that reason. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like over 20% of San Francisco. So like, and, and luckily the president of that school, she, um, she did her degree in, in law and has 14 lawyers that um, deal with that whole biz. <laughs> yeah. 
and and they have their tactics to keep spreading. Yeah. Uh, but so yeah, I I was just hopping on my skateboard and going from building to building. Like here's my painting studio. Here's where I use as a computer. <laughs> like, uh-huh. like the whole city felt like my house. And then right. like my spot where I was living was just like a bed, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Did you paint in your bedroom, or did you paint in a in like a dedicated studio space? Oh no, no, I I couldn't paint in there at all. Yeah. Like just like the size was just. It was the size of, like, the average bathroom or it was something. It like the size of a mattress. <laughs> it was the size of the mattress I'm sleeping on right now. <laughs> yeah, so, no, I, was, I wasn't painting in there. Uh, I actually remember this one time that a friend of mine was doing this, this very large painting of clouds. And I really, I really loved that painting. And, um, and he was just going at it, and... Uh, and I said, something feels, like, very familiar about this painting. Like, it just feels kind of like home. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the size of that painting was the same square footage as my house. <laughs> like, it was, like, almost the exact floor plan. Like, six by nine foot yeah, painting. <laughs> and I was like, that's why this painting, like, feels so, like, yeah, homey uh-huh. to me. <laughs> but, yeah, then after San Francisco, I, well, in San Francisco, I met my, my wife. Uh, for three days, she was visiting from Russia, and yeah, and and uh, you know then I visited her for a month in Russia, and we moved in together in Aspen, Colorado. But that's where the journey kind of took off, and I was, was painting in Aspen, Colorado, and it was this like secluded little little space yeah. where I could uh, be in like the middle of the forest but also be in downtown Aspen, which is a very, very strange place to live. It's like a Disneyland for millionaires. Yeah, I you mean... You moved to Aspen after graduating, after getting your BA at AMU, uh-huh. you moved to Aspen? Yeah. Why'd you move to Aspen? It was because that was the only place that my wife and I could find a visa for her. Really? A worker, yeah, working visa. She, Aspen, Colorado would take her. Yeah. Yeah, Aspen, Colorado would take her, but not Los Angeles, not San Francisco, not New York, just Aspen, Colorado, and um, and she had done a visa there um, around the time that we met, uh, and so she already knew how to, you know, get herself in kind of deal, but, like, we tried our hardest, and, I mean, you have to think of, like, the waiting line for getting a visa yeah. for Manhattan, like... God. There's probably, like, over a million people that <laughs> want to get a visa for Manhattan. That's probably true, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. within the Aspen, the Aspen line, not so long. Right, not so long. Not so long and you get the Aspen. best of both worlds. Like, you have those, um, you know, you have those, like, really tip-top, like, art collectors and successful people uh, from all over the world that are just congregating in this very small four-by-four block uh, downtown. Yeah. And they're just having a blast and skiing. And um, for that very same reason, my, my wife became a, a creative director for a gallery called Cha-Cha Gallery in the downtown. And um, we still uh, fly out there uh-huh. every, like from time to time uh, so she could do business with them. And, it, yeah, it's just, like, this very small community where you feel like anything is possible because 
whoever you meet is like super rich. So you're like, oh, this is life. Like, like if you make less than six figures a year, you're poor. So like, this uh, is normal. <laughs> that must have been good for business, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and um, and I got to concentrate a lot since uh, it was in the middle of the forest, and Jesus. <laughs> I was just painting in isolation every single day. And then when I would, like, come out of my kind of hermit hole, I would go to these amazing shows in the downtown and, and like, just full of famous artists and that would be there for a few days and then go back to Manhattan or Los Angeles or where, wherever. So that was just, like, a hub for... So like, a little vacation hub for, like, high society people? Exactly. Jesus, okay. Yeah. And artists, too. And artists. Because they're, they're people of culture. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And they appreciate their their art. Yeah. <laughs> was that an accident? Did, did you, like, when you moved to Aspen, was it like, oh, look, a bunch of rich people happen to be here, too? You moved there for yeah. love, right? I moved there for love, yeah. Also for biz. And, uh, and while I was there, I kind of realized, huh, like, this is where all of those rich kids in the 80s were at. And those rich kids grew up to be millionaires. <laughs> and, like, uh-huh. they're still here. So the, the you know, and, and collectors are usually around the age range of 45 to 60. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of worked. Like, the majority of the people there were in that age range mm-hmm. because they were the same people who were the rich kids in the 80s that were celebrating Aspen at, at its peak. No pun intended. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so then, like, I got to meet up with a lot of those people and, um, and get collected in a more personalized way, mm-hmm. so not, not so much through the gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I was able to get uh, involved with different tactics of uh, art business that I wouldn't have ever thought of if I was still in San Francisco, like, uh, like for instance, selling prints. So I, I met up with um, the guy that does prints for the Aspen Art Museum and pulled a bunch of prints and said this probably was a huge waste of money. And it wasn't. Like, I was, they are just, you know, selling right off the get-go. Uh-huh. And with that said, like, I'm a huge advocate for wherever you put your energy in, something will grow. Yeah. I put my energy in prints, and it started growing. I put my energy in small works, and, and I, you know, I got, like, a couple hundred off my hands. And there's just, like, so many avenues. And, um, and they say that a lot of successful people have seven different streams of income, and that yeah. is very easy with art. Like, we can come up with seven different streams of income in a matter of seconds, like right off the top of my head, like I could think of, you know, galleries and social media, prints, uh, you know, small works, like I said. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you have like these whole other avenues where you can do like a mentorship program. Yeah. I'm doing one straight off of Instagram at the moment. You could also have like a newsletter list. Uh, get sales that way. Um, How would you get sales off a newsletter list? Well, you are growing your newsletter, mm-hmm. 
collecting collectors oh. and followers from Instagram can subscribe and you're just kind of building your audience. Uh, you you know, going to openings and like telling people, hey, do you want to join my newsletter? It's just like, a good way to get people in the loop. Yeah, get in people the... in the loop. Because like essentially your your website is way more important than social media or anything else. Yeah. Like, so if you have everything that's coming towards your website, like your newsletter list and, yeah, uh, right. and all these other avenues, then the gallery, because galleries are not perpetual whatsoever, like, uh-huh. they're going to come and go. Yeah. Social media is going to come and go. There's yeah. going to be the next hot thing. Uh-huh. Like, don't, don't forget that we're all on MySpace at one point right. in our lives. Right. <laughs> and, and then, like... Our newsletter and our, our newsletter list and our website, it's always going to exist. Right. And so that's kind of the one thing that's perpetual. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. like you're saying, like, most collectors are 45 through 60, and how many of them use Instagram? Exactly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's, it's not the market. The yeah. market is more, like, for smaller works and, and uh, for prints and... Like, that's a market for t-shirts and mugs kind of deal, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Society 6. Yeah, and, uh-huh. and then we have, to, we have to wait, like, another 20 years till Before that market. Instagram yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So then when that market grows up, then they can't afford your art. So, like, right it's an machines. important, yeah, yeah, it is an important market, but it's an important market looking into the future, not, not like right. looking right now. I mean, I have, I have sold through Instagram um, quite a few times. There, there was actually points where when I moved to New York from Aspen that I didn't have any, like, I barely had any representation here. And so I had to, like, focus on my, on my West Coast kind of connections. And, you know, I felt like I was a shipping business or something. I was uh-huh. like, this isn't fun. Like, I'm just, like, shipping work all the time. Yeah. And... What I realized was, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like give this Instagram thing a shot, and mm. uh, for half a year while I was going to Grand Central Atelier, because I moved to New York to go to Grand Central Atelier, mm. half a year, I was just living off of Instagram. Hence, Wait, why and your business was coming from Instagram. Yeah, like really? my sales from Instagram was what's, what was supporting me for half a year here. And back to what I was saying, where, like, wherever you put your energy, something will grow. Uh I put my energy into Instagram, Uh and I'm making it sound easy, but there's intensity and survival involved. (laughs) Like, like, I'm like, I I changed my my brain from artist to businessman, and I'm just researching, learning, trying to figure it out, and things start to happen. And this works for everyone like you just have to like find out what is it exactly that's gonna you know be the thing that sets you apart like unique selling position exactly yeah i mean it's an art in itself yeah and i enjoy it way more than the average artist Uh uh-huh and um to your advantage (laughs) yeah i guess but but i yeah i just find it to be really fun that's like the skill you gotta have you gotta be a business salesman marketer person yeah and like yeah it is fun it's like strategy mm-hmm. and it's sort of like betting yeah sort of like gambling but 
So you had your income coming from Instagram sales, like small works, and mentorship? Yeah, the mentorship thing actually came recently, mm. like just, uh, just a few months ago. I said, okay, like, I'm going to try a, a mentorship program and just see what happens. And, um, and at the moment, it's going great. I have like about 11 students. Really? And everyone has different goals. Like, I'm, like some of them just want art business. Some oh, of them really? want both. Some of them just want technique. Uh-huh. I, I have a student that's just like, I just want to draw. Like, I just want to draw Bargs. Like, Charles, huh. Charles Barg uh-huh. Blockins. I have one right there. <laughs> is that why you have this Charles Barg thing up? Is that yeah, that was a doing? demo yesterday. Oh, and you just, like, filming it? Yeah. For them, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, live. It's live, so I'm, like, uh. you know, doing my whole, like, walking them through, like, how my, my brain functions yeah. when I do the demos. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, I don't let them off easy. I try for them to work while, uh, not during the demo, but, like, have a portion of it be that they're working. The majority of it, hopefully. Okay. Because, <laughs> like, I also don't want it to be that I'm just, like, demoing the whole time. Kind right. of deal. Do you conduct all of your mentorship through Instagram? Or do you use another app or communication medium? For that? I just use whatever does video call. And uh, oh. the vehicle is Instagram. Like, that's what got it got the ball rolling. Uh-huh. Um, which, yeah, like, Instagram's a fascinating thing. Although, you, you could go down the rabbit hole of, like, <laughs> like, that you're just on the damn thing the whole day. Yeah. And uh, that's not good either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very distracting. But... <laughs> But yeah, regardless, it's it's uh, like just it, it's changing the whole thing. Like galleries are, you know, having their artists based off of their Instagram followers, mm-hmm. and like I went to a show at the MoMA with this um, this lady who is a great artist, and they picked her up straight from Instagram. Now, what I remember from my art business classes. Um, during my BFA was that you have a pyramid, right? So, like, you have, you have all these steps that you have to go through to get to the very top, which would be the museum. Yeah. Like, uh, Gagosian would be right underneath. And yeah. then, like, you know, um, these, like, high society galleries, and then underneath that, the regular gallery. And, like, like there's all these steps in, until you get all the way to the cafe, like, you're at the cafe sure. kind of deal. Yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. the first step of the pyramid kind of deal, right? And, and uh, Instagram, like, just threw everything out of the window. Uh-huh. Like, you go from Instagram to the MoMA. Yeah. So the pyramid doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And that pyramid was valid just 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like, yeah, things are changing rapidly. And, and, like, we don't have to put, like, a floppy disk in an envelope with, like, our... CV and like all these different things and like pay 30 bucks and like cross our fingers that they're going to mail it back so that we can mail it to the next gallery. Right. And yeah, I mean, mean, imagine like how much it would cost to to do that. Like, like you want to send a proposal to a hundred galleries. Like that's a lot of money. Like Mm -hmm. that's like 3000 bucks. (laughs) But now and day, like, you can just kind of, like, send 
all these emails to galleries, like thousands of them if you want, uh, throughout, like, you know, over the years. And just play it as like a numbers game and be like, oh, if I apply to like a hundred galleries, maybe one will come out of it. And like, you could do that kind of numbers game kind of deal. It's like a digital camera. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're not playing it safe the way we used to. Like, when we were shooting with film, like, you had to really be careful. Yeah. (laughs) But now it's kind of like, you know, like, I'm going to shoot a hundred photos and choose one out of these. And the same thing. Is happening with the gallery world, like with the art world, I mean, in general, is that you can uh, contact all these galleries. And, you know, a lot of these galleries are catching on. Like, some of them are like, oh, yeah, you could send us your work, 20 bucks. <laughs> like, some of the galleries are doing that right now. Uh-huh. And, and so then you have to say, like, oh, hmm, like, it's 20 bucks. Like, am I ready for this gallery? <laughs> So they're, they're, you know, kind of uh, reciprocating in a way. Yeah, they're catching on. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. In the 21st century, the way that the artist business person succeeds is by applying to a wide range, developing a practice that encourages sharing and lots of um, casting a wide net, basically. Mm-hmm. Is that what you would recommend for someone who wanted to start out, you know, try to make a living off their art? Yeah, uh, so the way I think of it is, like, we have, like, all these tight-niche audiences, yeah. which are our target audiences, right? Mm-hmm. If you were to, like, do, like, let's say we're talking about hashtags, and, like, you're just, like, putting all these hashtags, like, oil painting, like, <laughs> yeah, right. like you're, you're kind of, like, you're getting somewhere, but is it... Your audience, I'm not sure if it might be, right? Like, so, yes, you're getting to all the people who are following, I don't know, the hashtag oil painting or or whatever, right? But, no, you're not getting to your target audience. So, so your target audience would be more like shooting fish in a barrel, let's say, right? Your your target audience would be like... Let's say, um, I remember I was talking with you about the, the Low Collective. Yeah. And um, so that is a very tight niche audience. Like, the, they, the one that is uh, Emilio Villalba, Daniel Seagram, and Justin Hopkins. Yeah. They have a very specific aesthetic. <clears throat> very specific. It applies to not everybody. Not everybody likes that stuff. But there's a few people that really like it. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy that stuff. Yeah. And. And I've gone to openings just yeah. knowing that those guys are going to be there. And, uh, yeah, and I used to be in a collective with Daniel Seagrove but before Low Collective. And I, I, you know, with Nathaniel Evans and, like, all these great painters. Mm-hmm. And, and, wow, like, that experience was just great. Like, collective, there you go. That's one of the seven streams of income, collective. Because you could just go straight from the, the collective to, like, an art fair. And, and stuff like that. And, and you have a better chance of making an impact at that art fair than you would have if you went by yourself. Is that what you mean? Well, I mean, you wouldn't really be able to go by yourself because it's like 15 grand to, oh, <laughs> to even uh. do the art fair. But, like, for, for instance, right now I'm part of a collective called Stella Ripley. I'm a big fan of this collective at the moment because they, um, 
they have abstraction all the way to realism and every single aspect of what they choose has a very appealing aesthetic to me and so um so we're we're starting to do a lot of i mean they've been doing fairs for quite a bit i'm starting to do fairs with them mm -hmm. and the art fair another part of the seven <laughs> streams of income <laughs> like, yeah. so there, there's um there's definitely gonna be this uh i mean it's already happening and it's been happening, but there there is a movement of collectives at the moment where yeah. they just launch themselves from the the collective to the art fair, right? And then um, that's also another way of, of kind of skipping the pyramid. Because it's like if you go from the collective to the art fair and are using social media tactics, mm -hmm. then you kind of can go from like being... A cafe kind of artist to being at like the freeze art fair or, or yeah. something like that uh -huh. so it's um it's a great avenue and i recommend it like um when i when i was in this collective in, in san francisco i kind of volunteered myself to to really try and learn how to market it and I was on the computer every day for a couple hours trying to market and just like really figuring out like what's what's the way like people do this thing mm -hmm. and like trying to shoot out to different uh, artist groups and magazines and like I was just trying my hardest and um, and they were too yeah and we'd do a pop-up show and you're always kind of nervous you're like what if nothing sells? And like everyone was selling at these pop-up shows that were uh, just for like a day or two. And I, I found that to be fascinating. I was like, this is great, but I'm never going to do this again. <laughs> like it was way too much work, oh. you know? <laughs> but it was, it was wonderful. And, and so like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore because it was just a couple hours a day, like just focusing on, on uh, marketing the collective. someone who would take, who would show your work. Yeah, yeah. But the great thing about that is then you get to collect collectors. Mm -hmm. You get to meet a bunch of different people. And then you have this experience that is, uh, you know, it's pretty avant-garde. Like, like, I remember I was, I was taking this class in my BFA, this, like, studio painting class. Yeah where we had to come up with different ways to market ourselves through a show that comes at the end of the semester, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, we'd, we'd brainstorm, and, like, ours was called Transparent. And so we, we made the show as transparent as possible for collectors. Because, let's face it, you go to a Chelsea gallery, and you walk in, and first of all, they judge you. They're like, is this a white American in a suit between the age of 40 and 60 yeah. who looks like a billionaire? Uh, probably not. <laughs> and then they don't talk to you and they don't yeah. welcome you into the gallery. Yeah. So it's like how to make the experience <laughs> transparent. Like, let's, let's put the, like, the process on a projector and like show everyone how, thing, how the art is made. Uh -huh. Let's welcome everyone. Let's do an auction and like, uh, and like make 
things feasible for people. Yeah. And let's make sure that everyone walks home with, with a painting. And I sold seven of the nine that night. And it was wild. Like, I wasn't expecting that, really. But because everything was very transparent, yeah. and we were trying our hardest to, to market ourselves and et cetera, like, mm-hmm. <clears throat> like thing, things were happening. Like, I think we even did, like, a GoFundMe and, and yeah. stuff. This was your first collective in San Francisco. Um, that, that was part of a, a class. Oh, the transparent thing, which is part of Yeah, that class. was just part of a class. And ah. Yeah, so, like, I'm super grateful for all these experiences I was having in my BFA, because, yeah. like, like, who, who now and day would be like, hey, let's get together as a group and, like, make this avant-garde way of selling that it doesn't really exist. Like, like mm-hmm. let's just choose this theme that is something that we've never really seen before mm-hmm. and just go for it and see if it works. And I don't think people would be able to take that risk if it wasn't forced upon you. Right, <laughs> so, right. So I, it's like, you know, in three and a half months, I produced nine works. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, and then it was like the moment of truth. Like, there's a pop-up show. It's only, you know, going to be like three hours or whatever, like mm-hmm. one night. And let's see if we can make it happen. And, and, you know, seven of the nine was great. But again, like, I had to work my ass off to get. Yeah. <laughs> but so, like, you know, if I say just, oh, yeah, seven of the nine sold in three hours, like, that sounds really romantic. Mm-hmm. But mm, it was more like I worked my ass off for three and a half months to make that night happen. And so did, like... 12 other artists yeah so yeah it's not as romantic as it sounds about your first collective in San Francisco when did that form and how did that form and what did you accomplish with it um so I actually got really lucky to be honest because at the time I was like a freshman I think or or junior and these guys were all seniors and their work was way better than my work. And, you know, to be honest, like, I probably only got in the collective because I was painting, like, 14 hours a day and kind of met other people that were painting 14 hours oh, a day, too. The nerds. <laughs> yeah. Congregated. Uh-huh. Freaks. Yeah, so, like, if I just was spending all these time with these great... Um, senior painters who are, you know, doing the same thing I am, just at a different level, like, there, it was just kind of like, that was, I guess that was the way that I was getting connected with them, and then, um, when I made it into the collective, I just really didn't even know how I was able to do that, because I wasn't at their level whatsoever, and but I said, okay, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do some things that can make it worthwhile for them. Like, at the time, I was um, a work study, yeah. and so was uh, a couple of other artists that were in the collective. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I, you know, that was another reason why I, I got in also, like, just, just because I was spending so much time around some of these artists. Yeah. And um, and we became friends, and 
and uh, they're you know great painters and they introduced me to like Michael Bormans and um, like all these other great painters out there like Justin Mortimer and, yeah and so I, I was really getting into them and uh, and the the neat thing about being a work study was that I was behind a computer and I was also uh, painting during my shifts I wasn't supposed to be painting so <laughs> but but I was painting during my shifts and behind a computer and uh, and I was also working hard as a work uh, yeah. as a work study so I was like juggling these balls <laughs> and uh, when I had to be behind the computer art business like that's all I was focusing on it was like I had a choice like I could either slack off and like I don't know do YouTube for <laughs> yeah. for three hours yeah. or whatever or I could just do art business and like so I was just like okay what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna do art business for a few hours every single day mm-hmm. for the collective and I'm also you know gonna be painting my ass off as usual yeah. and everything together um, was was helping a lot because at the time, like, I was like, you know, I have to prove myself yeah. some sort of way. So, um, so that's kind of how I was keeping up. It was a lot of work. And, you know, maybe a lot of the students in the collective didn't have those few hours to spare every day to be able to make it happen. Mm-hmm. The whole thing was just too much work. And uh, after a few years, we had just decided that we should just cut the wire and, and go off to galleries. Um, Disband, basically. Yeah, yeah. Because the... it was too much. It was too much work for too little payoff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, like, again, like, we were probably making less than minimum wage. <laughs> like, we did the pop-up shows. Yeah. It went great. We sold paintings. But then... At the end of the day, like, we had to put up the show, take it down, do all the marketing for it, and it was, it was wonderful, like, like, it was going great, but, like, was it worth it? And so we just kind of went our, uh, our separate ways, and, uh, (laughs) and uh, so a few of the, the painters joined the Low Collective, Uh and I... Then No Wave, right? No Wave, Yeah. Like, did low become no wave? I don't know. I know it as low, and I know it as no. So it's like okay. no, no collective, but I think they have like a branch of low collective, something yeah. like that. Yeah, okay. But it's like N-O-H, yeah. collective. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no wave. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, they had that, that show recently. At the booth gallery? At the booth gallery, yeah. and it was wonderful. So they joined the No Collective, and I decided to restart my whole. Rebrand yeah, I don't. Forge new identity. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, forge new identity. Okay. That's a good way to say it. So I decided to go to Grand Central Atelier. Yeah. And really understand uh, what's academic painting. Mm. What uh, What does it mean to have like this this like crazy methodical foundational approach to painting yeah um and i came in and it was 
It's kind of like like Socrates, like the philosopher, yeah. who's saying like how much we know is how little we know, kind of deal. Like, like I came in yeah, thinking yeah. that I knew something, figuring out then that what I actually know is a speck of sand on the beach. Past the beach of life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I, I know more than all the people in Athens because I realized that I don't know anything. Yeah. Kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, experience. Yeah, and like I remember my uh, my instructor the first couple weeks, he said, you know, get everything you learned from your university, and just put it, put it in your back pocket for a second. Yeah. What I'm about to tell you is going to be probably the polar opposite. Yeah. And I mean, the great thing about this instructor was that he's he's from San Francisco and like he. Um, knew how to talk to me. Yeah, because he had this. Devin? Yeah, Devin. Devin Cecil wishing. Devin Cecil wishing. Yeah. Teaching you foreign turning cast drawing. Yeah, cast drawing, okay. and um, and so so Devin, um, wonderful teacher and and yeah. painter. He's he's just like, this is conceptual painting, and like the first couple of weeks I was telling myself like, whoa, like. I have to unlearn so much of what I learned. Later to find that I actually wasn't unlearning, it was just adding another toolbox, like another tool to the toolbox. At first I was like, oh my gosh, forget everything you know. (laughs) But then later, as time progressed, I was like, everything they told me in in the university was super valuable. I learned how to see Mm -hmm. as a professional. And at Grand Central Atelier, like, I'm learning conceptual painting, and it's also at a professional level, and everything is valid, and everything makes sense, and you should never bag on one uh, more than the other, or, or whatever, yeah. you know, because they're all things that work. Yeah. You know, like, Sargent, for instance, like, academic painting worked for him to get his... Uh, bare bones but then when he got introduced to Monet he didn't say throw everything out the window he said this is something that I could add to my tool shed yeah like this is optical painting like Monet is introducing to us something that's very important to history yeah and it's you know taking the light and color that you're receiving and paint that Right, so it's it's very different from the academies, like the nineteenth century, like French academies, yeah, the where like Echo they're exactly the Academy Julian kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, which I love also. Yeah, like right. um, you know, as you know, like I'm I'm a bit scatterbrained because I'm just I love all of it. Although uh-huh. I do resonate with um, more expressive work yeah and that's got, is that Cecily Brown up on the Cecily Brown is on my wall yeah. everyone uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> see she's wonderful I I was just um talking with her today on Instagram really yeah so thank god for Instagram right <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was just telling her today about how I was in front of her painting in um in one of the the Chelsea galleries 
and it just felt like time stood still and I could be there all day. And I was like, this is what it means to love a painting. Like, yeah. And, and um, that's really what resonates with me. Like, I have, like, my three favorites at the moment. And, like, it's constantly alternating. But, yeah, yeah. I do love Cecily Brown, Donna Juanca. Donna Juanca? Donna Juanca. Okay. She does uh, installations which involve performance art. Uh-huh. And they're, it's basically these abstractions and... The, there's body paint involved and um, and artists that are moving very s- slowly and and interacting with the pieces and, mm-hmm. and it's it's stunning work um, and then Sherry Francine who um, and that's spelled with two S's she it, she's someone that I also talk with quite often on Instagram I never think that any of them are going to respond. <laughs> like, uh-huh. like I just write to like my favorite artists and and then like you just DM them. Yeah, and yeah, I get like, a response, and I'm like, whoa! Like, uh-huh. like these aren't artists that are full of themselves. Like, there are artists that they really care about what they do, and other artists and and love uh-huh. just the interaction. And so I I'm really grateful for Instagram in that regard, also that I get to interact with these artists who, whom I have never would have able had a chance, um, you know, five, ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah, so those are, those are like, the, the three at the moment that I'm just obsessed with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Sherry Francine shows at Dolby Chadwick, uh, one of my favorite galleries out there mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Spent a lot of time there during my BFA years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the moment now, during my GCA years, I'm spending a lot of time at Hollis Taggart. Which Hollis is, Taggart? Yeah, yeah. I've heard of that. Hollis Taggart, yeah. Um, yeah, just uh, just went to a show, uh, and the painter's name is Hollis, the wife of Alex Konevsky. So, I was like... Alex Konevsky's uh, wife is named Hollis? Hollis, and I love her paintings. Uh-huh. Um, she's fantastic. Is it Hollis Konevsky or is it? She has a different last name. Um, it's I. I'm a little bit uh, cloudy on yeah. her name exact. Her last name exactly. You can just send it to me but yeah, yeah, I could send it to you and yeah. Her first name's Hollis, and I was like, I love this painter, but like, like, what's her name? Like, because I thought like I was like. It can't be that her name is Hollis because yeah. I'm going to Hollis Taggart yeah, solo right. show. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, and I and but I loved her work so much that I and I went to the the solo show and like her name is Hollis. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I'll I'll shoot you her cool. last name um, mm-hmm. later. But yeah, so so that's uh, what I've really been into lately, and um, I I do go through phases. But yeah, for for some odd reason, like I've just always known what I want. Yeah. Like, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a painter. Yeah. Never changed my mind. Like, yeah. I've like tried a bunch of different things, and I'm just like, yep, I'm a painter. Like uh-huh. my whole life. Painting. Yeah. yeah. Totally. So, um, at the moment, I'm like, this is the branch that I want to go to, and I'm not second guessing myself at all. Like I'm just going into this branch because it's what resonates with me as a painter. It's what feels true to myself. 
and I'm just trying to explore myself because really like painting is an exploration of one oneself yeah um and I I am like when it comes to painting I'm extremely scientifical and nerdy and like yeah. I try to f understand everything like physics wise like what's yeah. going on and that's where GCA comes into play where like I'm if I make an abstracted brushstroke, I want to understand if one of the three things is making sense, hue, value, chroma. Yeah. Is one of these three things making sense right now? Uh -huh. And is one of them by choice totally abstracted and something that I find aesthetically pleasing? Uh -huh. And I kind of pick, pick it apart uh, like a surgeon, yeah. like I'm just like understanding um, like the psychology of the of the stroke, the aesthetic quality of it, and if it falls along the lines of hue value chroma and, and how that works in terms of physics, yeah. right? So like, every, yeah, every every brush like I'll make a brush stroke and say like, oh, like the hue is working. As if I was, I don't know, in GCA, like, really paying attention to, like, the hue working. Yeah. The value by choice is completely uh, just an aesthetic decision, which does not make any sense at all. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so that's kind of, like, how, like, I'm picking apart everything I do. As long as one's working, the other two can be kind of arbitrary? Yeah, or, if, or I could, by choice, case. have all three not work. You know, okay. it just really... Can you define hue, value, and chroma for me? Because I think I know... Anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, hue, I... Um, you know, hue is just the color of mm -hmm. uh, what you're looking at. Yeah. Color being something that's pretty subjective. Yeah. But, I mean, we all have a way to analyze color that um, can make it, you know, pretty objective. Yeah. So, like... You have hue being color. You have chroma being saturation. Oh, saturation. Yeah. Okay. Saturation is more like a camera term. And so they tend to, when we think of form painting, they think of chroma uh, more so. Mm -hmm. and, and how that relates to the light source. And, and, then, you have, uh, um, and then you have value. Value, just how much shadow and light is on. Shadow and light, which in GCA we're not allowed to use the word value, really. Like, it's like, how tipping towards the light is it? How rapidly is it turning light. away? It's not about how dark or light it looks. It's about its relation to the light source. Yeah, it's, it's sculpting the form. Is, is the world that you're creating sculpted? Yeah. And, um, so, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about GCA a little bit. Yeah. Because UCA is really like its own little, it's like a black sheep among <laughs> art schools, yeah. as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. How did you hear about it in the first place? So a, f a friend told me about it in 2012. As you were still an undergrad? As I was undergrad. <clears throat> and it was like my first or, no, no, wait, it was around the ending of that first year, right? And at the time, I'm, I'm thinking, like, should I give it all up and go to Grand Central Atelier? Luckily, I had very supportive parents, and they said, you should 
just go ahead and finish your degree. Mm -hmm. That's your fallback plan. How much longer did you have uh, at that time? At that time, I had like another four years. So you were a freshman. Yeah, I was you a freshman. About GCA. Yeah, ending of my freshman year, and and I was just like obsessed with the fact that they knew something that I didn't. Yeah. And I didn't I didn't know what that was, and it was kind of mysterious to me. But then I was like thinking in my head, okay, like at the previous schools that I was going to, I was somewhat non-representational, and that's really who I am. So should I actually like give up what I have at this amazing school to go to another amazing school that's in another category that isn't who I am? I like being, and so, meaning that Grand Central is almost entirely a representational yeah. school. Uh, yeah, like it's, it's naturalism yeah. to the utmost degree. Yeah. So, um, paint what you see. Yeah. yeah. Paint what you see and what you know together. And, um, and that's how you get your results. Yeah. And I was doing just, you know, paint what you see optically mm -hmm. in an impressionistic kind of manner. Mm -hmm. I was doing um, abstraction, semi-abstraction, surrealism. I was doing all these different avenues, cityscape even. That's what you're working on at AAU. At AAU. Yeah. And I am so happy that I did that because it just allowed me to you know, stick my foot in the water into a bunch of different aspects of, of art and, you know, better understand what is true to myself. Yeah, it made you well-rounded, well-versed and fluent in a lot of different languages. Yeah. <clears throat> and then able to really see which one you enjoy speaking the most. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um... Yeah, so... Yeah, what are you going to say? you can then use the other uh, aspects that you aren't, like, totally in love with, but you like parts of it, and you incorpor incorporate these aspects of, say, photography or cityscapes into your figurative paintings, even. Yeah. Somehow. Um, Definitely. Just knowing the whole, the whole gamut really lets you incorporate a lot of different flavors into your, uh, your paintings. Yeah, yeah, and, and also their perception of the art world was that we should be producing 45 paintings a year, and yeah. at the rate... AAU? Yeah. 45 paintings a year. Yeah, like that's the gallery standard kind of deal. Okay. Um, to being a successful artist, and and that would never fly at Grand Central Jeez, Atelier. Yeah. So How it, many paintings a year do they make there? Um, what's, the, what's the norm? Well, so they're famous for their, their uh, month-longs. But at the moment, they are doing uh, faster paintings. Mm -hmm. So they kind of divide the day into like a month long and also faster paintings. I mean, you, you know this yeah. from when we were studying together. Yeah. And um, yeah, so, so because of that divide, you are kind of getting best of both worlds where you're, you're understanding like how this could apply to a faster uh, way of painting and, and a slower way of painting where you could be very methodical crawl across the form as you were an ant mm -hmm. and treat the form in a, in a way that you really wouldn't have ever thought of if you were solely doing Impressionist painting. Um, yeah. Now, nothing wrong with Impressionist painting, of course. Right. But what I find was that if what worked for Sargent was meshing Impressionism with 
academic together and made him who he was, I, I feel like that's something valid. And I'm kind of trying to give it a shot right now, like seeing like yeah. how meshing the two can give me, you know, so, some interesting results. Yeah. Sort of speak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like, um, like education is education. Like if you learn one thing, it's, impo- it's an important experience. Yeah. Um, you're, you're never not going to get nothing out of it. Yeah. And so, yeah, like... I'm really happy that I said, you know, my parents are right. Like, I should get this degree. Like, mm-hmm. I should figure out what's going on um, with the art world because they had yeah. amazing uh, classes yeah. uh, outside of studio practice. And then their studio classes were also um, one of a kind. Like, they're so amazing. Like, such inspirational teachers. Um one of my favorite to note was Ho Jun Lee. Mm-hmm. He's he's like one of those painters who try to keep themselves off the grid, but yeah. is just like one of a kind. And and um, Kevin Moore was another great artist. And I did this painting right here. Mm-hmm. It's one of your wife. Of my wife. Um, With a bunch of yeah, big bouquet of flowers. Which is reminiscent of what I'm doing today. Yeah. And so uh, he is a really big part of um, of when I was searching my voice, and I'm still searching my voice. He is a huge part of of like the one person who said like like you know you can't get away with doing this realism stuff if you know deep down inside you're semi representational. Or even I might be inclinating even towards non-representational yeah. entirely. Yeah. And he dug that out of me, and like you know, this this painting came out of it. Even though like, um, th- this painting might even be more representational than I'm I'm willing to go. Now and day, but it just like set off the the fire kind this of. This was Kevin Moore. In Kevin Moore's class, yeah, he he's a. Uh, wonderful painter represented by uh, Hespi Gallery in San Francisco. Did you make this painting when you were still in your undergrad? Yes. This painting? I made it during my undergrad. Before you were married to her? Yeah. When (gasps) when we were uh, just dating and and this... You were in love. Yep. And the... So... um, so he taught me that everything has a purpose and okay. and um, and trying to find the purpose within like make, making sure that everything you do makes sense and is true to your to yourself right yeah. so like the format of this is similar to like a cell phone screen and this yeah. was from it looks like a cell phone yeah and, and this was a screenshot uh-huh. of a Skype phone call yeah yeah and it, so it was like a blurry it. really bad photo uh-huh. and I love it when they're like super bad photos because then the abstraction is a little easier. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if your head is tied up in in uh, being representational for the majority of of your day, uh-huh. then when you when you switch brains, then 
it's like you kind of do need something that's already kind of abstracted right yeah. off the, or, or maybe not having reference at all right um, and this uh, this background was inspired by Mikhail Rubel who's my favorite um, academic painter uh -huh. um, some would say that he's not very academic but I, I kind of see him through those eyes as Russian academic but also push the limits as uh, as a more expressive yeah. painter later in his career um, so yeah yeah um, and so huge influence uh, that school prior to that school when I was a little bit even more so non-representational yeah. I was going to Lorenzo de Medici in Florence uh, Italy and I was going to um, and, and then later I was going to UMSA in Buenos Aires, Argentina where my family's from uh -huh. I was even going to Pasadena Art Center in Los Angeles and, and uh, I was studying in Los Angeles art my whole life <laughs> like, yeah you're from LA right? yeah, okay. yeah oh, I took my first nude figure drawing class when I was five years old because when I was three I had told my parents that I wanted to be a painter really? and so then they by the time I was five they had to talk with the teacher and say like you know he's serious about this so like this and like in this doll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> so so yeah like I was five years old and and taking nude figure drawing classes <laughs> I've always, by kind of, I've always kind of been extremist for some odd reason. Uh -huh. I mean, I'm sure you could see that just from me living two totally. lives and totally. and like, like I, I have like a little tiny abstract painting right there. I see that. <laughs> like, and and like I did that painting in GCA when no one was looking. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna get this out of my system and then continue. <laughs> and you hide it under a. Yeah. Throw a little cloth over it. Yeah. That's really funny. It's yeah. Like, it's like a little Gerhard Richter. Yeah, it's a little, a little looking cloud formation thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little snippet into, into like what's deep down inside. Uh huh. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, so I've I've been kind of living these these two lives, mm -hmm. and uh, and I I've been I've been loving it. I mean, in in terms of my art career, it kind of uh, has been scattering me around a bit. Yeah. Cause um, I'll do shows that are very contemporary, and then I'll do shows that are very academic, and yeah. um, and so I'm also living two lives in my art career, but because of social media, it's mm -hmm. been like the glue that holds it together. Because I was taught that if you were to do different things, then the galleries would just, like, drop you. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'm glad that you brought up Gerhard Richter because, you know, he does everything. Everything, yeah. <laughs> and he's made it happen, and he's one of the wealthiest artists today. Right. So, um... But, you know, like, he is one of the wealthiest artists today because he's known around the world and he's made it happen for himself. Social media is kind of like that glue that could make it happen mm -hmm. for yourself. And so the way that we've been seeing 
that frowned upon way of working might actually be skewed. Um, and then, uh, not to mention that we have like this poly art movement that's happening as we speak, where you ever hear about when they tried to make this language that everyone on earth speaks? Esperanto? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so Esperanto, it's, it's kind of like that, where everyone on the planet is trying to make Instagram safe art and not be true to themselves. Uh-huh. And I find that to be something that can really hurt culture. Monoculture. Monoculture. Yeah. Now, there's two things happening. It's like you have monoculture, but then you also have this other thing where you're being introduced to the world wide web like the what the world has to offer in terms of art and culture and and all these different aspects like you get to be introduced to that and and in ways that are just fascinating but like you know at the end of the day like there's this poly art movement happening right now where everyone is becoming the same artist huh. because what of is, instagram what is poly art are, is that an actual movement or is that like a term that you or some people are using to describe a phenomenon? Well, I was introduced by that term by uh, an instructor from New York Academy who swears by it, um, that all the movements of the planet, you know, poly, are kind of coming together as one movement. And uh, and they're all kind of crossing paths, Uh and all these movements... Are relating to one another yeah. and uh, and sure that could be great like you're on Instagram and you're like oh this artist from Spain just like I don't know broke that edge in a fascinating way yeah and then, uh-huh. and then you're like I want to try that but then like you're like oh but this other artist from Austria does this one thing where like he keeps like the edge super crisp mm-hmm. your brain kind of starts to like say like who am I? Like, am I like this artist who's trying a bunch of different other things? Or am I this, like, artist who's going to be true to myself and, like, delete my Instagram account and, like, understand, like, who I am? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, there, there's this, this thing that it could be very limiting, but mm-hmm. at the same time also be a gateway to... Uh, like what the world has to offer in terms of art and and i've I've seen like the epitome like the definition of this movement on a particular artist profile who I'm not going to name, of mm-hmm. course, but it's like one post is that they are this artist, and then the next post is that they are that artist, and then the next post they're they're like, you know I'm gonna try. Uh, to replicate this thing that that artist did. And it's like every single post is just this, like, Instagram window to the artist that this artist is influenced by, which at the end of the day, like, sure, we could say, like, maybe that uh, this... um, this artist is like a, a con artist and like, like, like 
the way that they work, maybe that's true themselves. Uh-huh. Like maybe maybe emulating everyone out there yeah. is what's true to this artist. Maybe, yeah, yeah. You know, so I can't say like it's a bad thing. Right. But I mean, there's um, a lack of identity. Yeah, there's a lack of identity. Yeah. Within working that way. Yeah. So I um. I do like like I'll have like postcards from gallery openings and like I'll make a brushstroke and I'll be like wait did I did I make that because subconsciously like this is a postcard that has been on my table for a while yeah like and then I'll just like put the postcard away and be like what would the brushstroke have looked like if if I didn't go to that opening and so it's really important to be influenced um now I can't say that it's as important to Frankenstein art together, mm-hmm. uh, although that is very valid in one's growth. Yeah. Like you could be a this like Frankenstein artist for a while, and then be like, okay, like I'm I know what I like. Mm-hmm. Now who am I? Like yeah. you you could find yourself that way, and yeah. there's so many ways to do it. And regardless to any way of doing it, they're all one like the artist's journey like they're all going to take our whole life kind yeah. of deal like because it's it's not easy <laughs> what would you say are some of the major differences between an atelier like Florence um, or Grand Central and then the realistic program that AAU offers so I would say that Florence is similar to Academy of Art University in the sense that you know for instance they have uh they have a a two-year program at academy of art university incorpor it's incorporated into the bfa yeah where you're doing foundations solely right and because it's a very optical kind of school mm-hmm. we're we're kind of like one out of ten we're kind of like a a nine on uh on optical and one on on conceptual, conceptual. like form painting yes, kind of deal. Methodology. And then the yeah. methodologies of AAU are more similar to Florence. More similar to Florence. Well, I should say Florence is more similar to AAU than the GCA in terms of the actual practical style of drawing that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Where where like Florence is probably like a like an eight yeah. on uh, optical, a two on form. And at the moment, like maybe GCA is kind of like a six on, uh, on form, form yeah. and a four on conceptual yeah. kind of deal. Yeah. I mean, just, just five years ago, it was, yeah, optical. Yeah. Uh, just five years ago, um, they're kind of like a eight or a nine. Eight or a nine. Yeah. On the conceptual. Like. On the conceptual. Where now, yeah, they're they're like a, a six on the conceptual and a four yeah. on the optical. Yeah. Are there other schools you know of that are that lean heavy towards conceptual? Because I remember you saying uh, that that Grand Central is one of the only places where you could learn this conceptual style of painting. Yeah, so there are schools that have opened up in recent years uh, as a response to this methodology. Huh. So, like, there's, you know, there's one in uh, an atelier, a new one in Paris. 
Um, Academy? Yeah, yeah. And then um, there's one called like Atelier Dojo. Yeah, in Austin. In Austin, Texas, yeah. That's run by Jennifer Balkin. Uh huh. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> and, and, and like, uh, yeah, you had uh, like Douglas Flint and Scott Waddell taught there. Really? They taught a workshop Scott there. Scott Waddell taught there, okay. Yeah, because um, one of the instructors at Atelier Dojo went to GCA. So it's, that's kind of when, when they were Water Street. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's kind of like, I think, how things started to spread a bit and yeah. newer ateliers started to open based off of the response of GCA. Then there's other ateliers where they don't use this conceptual method, but they do cast painting and mm. they go through all the rigors yeah. where they go general to specific yeah. as where, uh, you know, general to specific is done in all the schools we were mentioning, like mm. uh, Florence and AAU and yeah, yeah. all these different uh, schools are using general to specific, probably 99% of them. And then you have like window shading being done in GCA, which is a whole nother thing where you're just like kind of like a photocopy machine. Yeah. You're just going like centimeter by centimeter. Window shading. And it's, you're like sculpting the form yeah. on this like sheet of paper or uh, on this uh, painting, let's say. These and tiny little strips. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember. Um, that I was told to think about it as like when I'm drawing, my my pencil's the sculpture tool. Yeah. And the more I'm putting down graphite is the same as the more I'm taking off clay. a little bit of clay or, or marble. Uh -huh. And like like I remember that there was this analogy like that you should try to pretend that as you're sculpting the form, there should be marble dust that's sliding down the sheet of paper and just collecting at the bottom of your drawing horse or whatever and mm -hmm. and like it's just collecting down there like because you're chipping away at this yeah. at this marble and I like that's fascinating and something that I would have never learned of if I wouldn't have moved to New York right so I uh, I'm huge advocate for learning this kind of conceptual method because um, again at the end of the day like we should learn as much as possible like if you go to Russia you're gonna learn uh, how to perspectively put every single anatomical point in the right location mm -hmm. that's very valuable information for drawing yeah like just as important as what we're doing in the United States so it's yeah. like we have all these different methods, like, why not learn all of them? All of them. Yeah. I'm curious, now that you've got a bit of an end to Russia through your wife, yeah. do you think you'll ever study at a Russian academy? Um, I think my wife wouldn't allow that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she was like, she's like, You're, you, you have just a couple more years oh, at cool. GCA, so just... Uh, just finish and that's it, uh, you know? Enough of the school already. But I was, th I was thinking of that being a possibility <laughs> before I even met her. Oh, really? Yeah, because uh, the Ru Russian Academy is, like, just like what, what we see coming out of there is, is like, fantastic. Yeah. Like, there's, there's this drawing aesthetic that they have that is, 
so amazing, yeah. so appealing, and and uh, has a lot of character, and has been developed through hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, right. Uh, uninterrupted. Uninterrupted, like. Like we, like in the United States, just have so little history yeah. that we're kind of collecting fragments of the past and puzzling it together, just as uh, Ted Seth Jacobs did when he was teaching Jacob Collins and Jacob Collins was his student, yeah. and, and being passed down and passed down, and and um, that's. You know, that's a fantastic way of doing things, but, like, if you trace it back to the source, like, a place like Russia, where the, it's, like you said, un uninterrupted, and they've just been doing it for so long. That tradition's been going on for yeah. centuries. And, like, you just go to, like, an average high school there that doesn't even have a drawing program or anything, and, like, you know, you have to take your your art class in your high school or whatever and they are teaching you cast drawing perspective yeah. Yeah. architecture you drawing some of the best art knowledge in the world yeah because it's all just baked in there it's just a cultural institution yeah yeah like whenever I'm talking to any friends from Russia they're just like oh yeah I had I had to do so many cast drawings in my high school and I'm like what anybody from Russia <laughs> Accountants from Russia. Yeah. And engineers from Russia. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, how much in our life are we going to use calculus? You know, yeah. maybe little to, to none, yeah. most of us. And it's like the same thing with drawing. It's like, if, if you're taught this method that's, that's very advanced, like they, they do in Russia, uh -huh. to high school students, yeah. they have to use their problem-solving skills the same way as they would with calculus. Yeah. And maybe they use it little to none throughout their life, mm -hmm. but it is a very valid approach to you know developing your your skills, yeah. like developing your brain into um, into problem solving. You know, mm -hmm. just like understanding how to figure something out in general is just a good skill to have, mm -hmm. and and that's implemented in and the U.S. education, but not so much with art. Yeah. <laughs> like, they cut that out first with, thing. You get it with STEM, you know, with science and mathematics, but you don't really get it with art. Mm-hmm. That's you know, a curious phenomenon there. So, yeah. So, for someone who... What do you see as... What, would, what sort of changes would you like to see in the future of art education in order to make this kind of realistic, for the people who like painting semi-representationally and also non-representationally, but they want to have a wide range of, they want to have a, a lot of tools in their toolkit mm -hmm. to make the kind of work they want to make. They want to be highly skilled and highly visionary. Yeah. What changes would you like to see in art education? What kind of schools would you like to see come out? Well, so I'll tell you one thing. The art schools nowadays, because of digital painting, have gotten so much 
over to that wing that they don't even have a mandatory painting class prior to digital painting. And I find that to just be ridiculous because how do you replicate, how do you emulate the way paint feels and functions and the texture of it and the viscosity of it and the transparency, the opacity, all these different variables that paint has to offer. How do you replicate that without ever even touching it? So if I were to say one major thing that art schools should change about their programs Mm -hmm. is great, there's this like new hot thing called uh, digital painting and there's all these different like wonderful ways to expressing yourself uh, through through video, audio and uh, installation and etc. That is very valid for uh, painters now and day because I mean there's so many painters that are doing installation and video and like all these different mediums along with their painter paintings mm-hmm. um, that if you don't ever touch the medium then you're just running circles around this major problem yeah. <laughs> which is the lack of uh, use and knowledge and experience of of this um, medium So that's something I would say is very important. Like, you can't have a fine art program where you don't learn how to paint and draw. Like, that should just be something mandatory. At least, at least a a year of the four years. Yeah. It doesn't hurt, you know, to have a year of the first year, of the first uh, four, Uh be that you're playing around with paint and drawing. Um, in a way that can just give you some sort of structural foundation. Yeah. So, I, yeah, that's, that's what I would say, like, would be the number one thing mm-hmm. for, um, for art education today. All the other stuff, I think, is, is great. Like, the way we are doing these, um, these different programs that have no relevance to uh to maybe what you and I do like realism painting mm-hmm. I, I think that's also something that should exist but even if that sort of mentality even if a, a, a state school a uh, state university were to have like one year you know of uh of some foundational knowledge mm-hmm. they could very much so benefit from it because at the end of the day, like, the school isn't going to determine who you are for the rest of your life. And if you're, uh, if you're, like, in the later part of your life saying, like, oh, you know, there's this one thing called, I don't know, semi-representational painting, and I just want to give it a shot. If you weren't doing that your whole life, then doing it would be very intimidate, intimidating and uh, seem completely out of reach. Yeah. So, so yes, that, that would be the one major thing, for sure. <laughs> Just keep that in there. Yeah. How about for the schools that are the ateliers, the ones that are 
focused on that. Fo- I mean, like, that's their reason for existence. Um, are there things with ateliers or with realistic schools where that, that's the purpose of the school is to teach you how to draw well? Mm-hmm. Are there, is there room for improvement that you're seeing? If you were running this, one of these schools, would you structure things differently? Yeah, I mean, maybe not to the way that a lot of ateliers would like, <laughs> yeah. but um, it would be that it would be if if I were to run a representational atelier, mm-hmm. I would run it all the way through, a void of anything that has to do with voice or creative expression, and there's a reason for that. Wait, wait, you, you would say no creative expression yes. at this school? Yeah, like a Nazi. Basically, (laughs) as you would find in many of them today, actually, Uh Uh, I would do that on purpose. But here's a twist. What I would do is a lot of these ateliers and academies have talks going on all the time. Um, Like they'll have like their Tuesday talk or Wednesday talk where like at night, like you could do like, I don't know, some history or something. Mm -hmm. What I would do is just show them all the different avenues that that the art world has to offer yeah. on like a Tuesday night lecture yeah. every single week. Uh-huh. So one week would be art business, and the next week would be abstract painting, and the next yeah. week would be like conceptual kind of uh, uh, like conceptual on the side of of the art world, not conceptual on the side of the atelier world, it would be, you know, like, questioning what we're doing Mm -hmm. and why we're doing it and et cetera. So every single week, it would be, like, this thing where, like, okay, we have this technique that we're learning uh, for four years, but every single week, we also have the option, keyword option, to go to a lecture that shows us that after this program, um, we're not going to end up working at Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, prepare you for the world. Yeah, exactly. How to, yeah, because the art world doesn't necessarily care about how well you can draw. Mm-hmm. So here are some programs that might be able to help you stay afloat in this yeah. world. Yeah. There's nightmare stories I've heard about that after the atelier they just kind of get together and try to hire a model Uh like if they're still going to an atelier and work from the model Uh and do the same exact thing and have to resort to getting um, maybe jobs that they hate so that they could pay this model that's very expensive yeah and uh, it's not feasible they're still going to school in a sense (laughs) it's like they're still going to school because that's all they know yeah so if I were to run an atelier it would be like an introduction to what you can do after the atelier yeah as well as yeah yeah. along the way right what do you think of quality versus quantity in terms of like if I just want to be a good drawer thinking of it as athletics Uh how long am I going to need to practice every day and what, what practices am I going to do to really up my game? What's going to help me really become a good drawer? And what seems like it might help, but just waste my time? 
But right. let's just start with how long a day should you be doing it if you want to be good. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's this funny thing I did with an analogy that I received uh, during my BFA where I kind of like put it on a twist after my experience here in New York. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the phrase is, it's way more important to do 30 paintings that are one hour each mm-hmm. in terms of experience than to do one 30-hour painting. Yeah. Now, the way that I want to twist that phrase is it's also just as important to just do a 30-hour painting hour, regardless yeah. just to figure out how far you could push a painting, yeah. know how to get to that end point. So then when you're doing 31-hour paintings, you know what your end goal is uh-huh. and you don't have like a bunch of mediocre paintings. Like yeah. so, uh, so with that said, like when you're... Um, when you're approaching painting and you're learning and you're wanting to get those experience hours in, I have to say that the 10,000 hour rule is not so much, um, it's not so much the end all. Yeah. What is more, uh, what is more, of a rule that should be approached, I feel, is just to understand what your flaws are all the way through you, your gaining of experience and work off of them uh-huh. and just try new things. And as you go, carry along the things that worked for you and disregard the things that didn't, yeah. but just have it all be experience that is functional for your journey and the reason why I say that is because you could be uh, like doing a portrait where the nose is too low for 30 years yeah. <laughs> and not even know it uh-huh. uh, or you could be the type of artist who maybe has just been painting for like a total of 500 hours in the last couple years, but doing it in the way that the growth has just been enormous because yeah. they know the key points. Yes. And those key points will get you from point A to point B way faster than 30 years of painting the no- nose too low. Uh-huh. So, so yeah, I, uh, I do like the 10,000 hour thing, the, the, that kind of view. But more importantly, like we have to make sure that we're not wasting our time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone has their own different creative path. Mm. And this path has its own unique way of strategizing. I do find that this way of, of meshing the the quantity uh, way of of learning and the the quality way of learning and ju- just kind of combining them and you and utilizing them both like we we could think of it as like a runner like a runner can run long distance and also be a sprinter mm-hmm. uh, the the sprinter can make it to the Olympics and so can so can the long distance runner 
if getting there meant that you had to learn this conceptual method, then yes, I do very much so recommend learning it. If, if, get, if, if optical painting can only get you to 80%, uh -huh. and, and that next 10% might be uh, conceptual, um, that last 10% is, I like to think of being like more of a spiritual thing. Yeah. Like we're not de all destined to be like these amazing one-of-a-kind painters that are recorded in history, yeah. right? But, but I am thinking that, that if you were to come up to 80% with optical and that next 10 would, would get you there with conceptual, just like the understanding of, wor of the world, mm -hmm. then finding yourself in that more spiritual aspect of what would set you apart, I would, I would find to be like the last 10 kind of deal. We could say that that's kind of like the, the Yale school. <laughs> like that might be able to evoke that in your practice more so than any other school maybe. Um, but yeah, I do, I do find that observation, if brought up to 80%, does require other variables to make you the well-rounded artist, really artist that, yeah. you know, that, that would make a mark in, in history as a subjective opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to say something, you know, unique and something that indicates something that transcends tr transcends it, it it takes all these different schools and perspectives and cultures and it comments on them and it, and it says something bigger than than all of them yeah because you know weak or mediocre art is usually kind of confined to like one culture or like one small little subculture mm -hmm. but like really transcendent art there's something bigger than a collective ego about it yeah it's, yeah. it's why you could cry in front of a Rothko yeah there, there's something that is touching our soul in a way that is beyond even what we can understand as our existence of what we know as being human like it's just something that it's like looking at the ocean yeah. at night and yeah. and you feel something is out there you're responding to you're responding to it in a way that's very intense and and you just don't know why it uh hits hits hard to your heart mm -hmm. um so yeah well said cool. <laughs> all right uh lucas thanks for dropping the knowledge if anyone if anyone wants to hire you as their mentor are you still open yes i'm still open okay and where can they find you through Instagram. Instagram. Just uh, DM me on Instagram, Lucas Bononi Art, and I will respond almost immediately because it's an addiction. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a couple shows coming up. Uh -huh. um, one at uh, Collins Galleries and another at uh, Haynes Galleries. And uh, looking forward to one at uh, A Bend gallery in Colorado. That information is available on your website? Yes, lucasbononi.com. Okay.
All right, well, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Joseph. <laughs> thanks a lot for having me. As was just discussed, you can find Lucas via these internet portals we just mentioned. I linked them in the show notes for the lazy. For the unlazy, there are other links in the show notes if you want to study the galleries that were mentioned, the artists that were mentioned. As you study this stuff, and as I'm doing this podcast, you start to see patterns emerge. And when the patterns emerge, it starts to feel more familiar. It starts to feel more manageable. And it feels like a, like a puzzle. It's one of the reasons that I'm doing this show. So you can... Um, by iterating the same things from different angles, we start to get a more complete picture of it. And we can understand it better. If you want to navigate the jungle, you know, it helps to have a map. So, for all those who want to be skilled artists, keep on listening. It's not hard work, it just takes a long time. So, it is hard work. Way to go us. Oh, one last thing. Email me, please. I want to hear from you. If you have any questions, if you want to know anything, if you want to chat, you can email podcast.isor at gmail.com. I'm going to put that in the show notes, too. Right if you're bored. It's summer. What else do you have going on? <laughs>